Welcome to the Room of Lives, I'm your host, Neil. In the previous episode, I described the experiences of my first 10-day Vipassana course. In this episode, I'm speaking with Tim Lanning, who was the assistant teacher in my second 10-day silent meditation course that I took recently, once again in remote Texas. These courses were set up by a Burmese teacher called S.N. Goenka, who passed away several years ago. The goal of these Vipassana centers around the world is to continue teaching these courses in the exact same way that he taught them. So, in the evenings during the course, we would watch recorded videos of the same original discourses that Goenka would give, so he is still considered the main teacher of the course. However, the two assistant teachers are there to oversee and facilitate the course and interview the students and answer their questions in a couple of brief sessions. Tim, however, says that he is only the Dhamma DJ whose purpose is to press play on Goenka's videos. On the final day of the course, I met with Tim and asked him to come on my podcast, and he agreed. But then several incidents happened that made me start to think that this interview would not happen. It finally ended up happening, though, and here is that conversation. We begin with the circumstances that brought him to Vipassana in Japan many years ago and what he would tell that younger self today. Then we delve into questions I had about the Vipassana meditation practice, its effects, and the Buddhist cosmology surrounding it. Tim describes what his regular practice looks like, then he challenges me on my own meditation practice and my substance use, and explains why my intellect can become an obstacle to the meditation. Then he shares with me how his anger towards his family pushed him into Vipassana and how it eventually helped heal the family dynamics. We end by discussing the laws of the cosmos and the magical spiritual climate of India. So are you good if we start right away? Yes. Okay, so I'm curious a little bit about, you know, just like your general background, life background, like upbringing, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and yeah, like, like a brief life story and particularly how did, you know, a Western person like you come into an Eastern spiritual path like Vipassana? Yeah, that was your... your your first uh, question there. Um, so, so I lived in uh, Japan for, for uh, 18 years. Mm. And I was fascinated by the, I, I lived there for that long because it, uh, it was very interesting for me to be living outside of a, a, a non Western country, a non-Christian country. Mm-hmm. I had a, a goal. I, I, I went there the first time was in the Navy. And out of all the countries that our ship visited, Japan to me was the most fascinating. So I was determined to get back there. Mm-hmm. I got into an exchange program from the University of Missouri. That's where I'm from originally. 
uh, I was doing a thing called the Year in Japan program at one of the universities in Tokyo. And that year turned into 18 years. And it was, I think, after my 10th year of being in Japan, uh, there was an article in the English language newspaper called the Japan Times. A journalist had taken a course. And there were two things in the article that caught my attention. First was, she's, the headline interested, caught, caught my attention. It said, Marathon Meditation Near Kyoto. I thought, oh, marathon meditation, that sounds interesting. And I read the article. And in the article, she said, this is a godsend for someone who's between jobs or relationships. That was me. And the other thing that uh, intrigued me was she said there's no charge for the courses. Of course, I I couldn't um, pull handedly accept that I, I had some doubts about that mm. and because nothing is free mm. how can that be no charge for the courses <clears throat> but and when I went to do my first course there near Kyoto mm. I kept waiting for the catch you know mm. thinking that there had to be something but um, there wasn't all those people were serving me without expecting anything in return and i ended up doing that that for the last 30 years Mm. and from that first point what have been you know all of sort of your subsequent experiences and steps until you ended up like becoming an assistant teacher for a 10-day course um first and foremost don't, don't have any delusions or illusions about assistant teachers, that's actually a misnomer. We, none of us are teachers or qualified to teach. When people ask me, are you teaching the next course? I say, no, but I will be the Dhamma DJ. I will, Rekaji will be teaching the course. I will be playing the recordings. <laughs> um, sometimes we have meetings amongst ourselves and there's kind of a joke or an expression that I really like, and that is that people get Dhamma in spite of the ATs. Oh. Our primary mission, our primary job is to get out of the way of the transmission of Dhamma, because none of us, as I said, are qualified to teach. We are all, <clears throat> it would be more accurate to say we are assistants to the teacher, meaning we are there to provide in-person uh, a little m- more guidance or to answer a personal uh, question regarding the students, uh, a personal, uh, 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 so- something more um, uh, like, like if a student is having a particular problem or something more more um, aimed to their particular problem. Yeah. So um, Goekaji is the, the teacher. And so I I am. Um, I basically am doing everything, what you and everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember that during our 10-day uh, retreat, um, we had a brief conversation and you said something that struck me. You said that um, the effect of Vipassana practice for you was like, 
it was like the transformation that you experienced was like night and day, like team yes. before and team after. Could yes. you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, Gonkaji and, and the Buddha say that uh, we can have two births in life. One is the birth when we come from the womb of our mothers, mm -hmm. and the other is when we uh, come into contact with Dhamma mm -hmm. and uh, the path of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, I realized um, that this is the way out of all suffering, out of all misery. And that was very clear. I, and I was so happy because I was 33 years old and up until 33 years, I was suffering um, as a result of my own uh, behavior, um, not, not living a good, wholesome life, not following Sheila. Mm. That, there, there's a way out of all suffering, all misery, and that I am the one responsible for my misery and also for my liberation. 100%. Yeah. Um, I feel like misery or suffering can take different forms or flavors. There can be, for example, misery due to jealousy, misery due to a feeling of insecurity, anger, worthlessness. Um, arrogance, all kinds of different oh. flavors, depression. Yeah. And, and so would you say that Vipassana is a path that is able to address like all of the different flavors of everything, everything, A to Z, up until the suffering of death. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's what Vipassana teaches us. That if somebody really experiences this thing called Ani, Ani, what's that word? Anicca? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> when we start to experience that at the yeah, actual yeah. physical level of these arising and passing away of these sensations, yeah. we are preparing ourselves for our own death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, towards the later part of the, the retreat where we are kind of deeper into the Vipassana practice itself. And we are hearing a little bit about this, you know, the, the bodily sensations that we are kind of scanning for. And we hear like, you know, for some like advanced meditators that the blockages are not so much there anymore. So you can, in a single breath, maybe you can kind of feel the sensations, scan your entire body. And then maybe at one point I heard that it can also be like kind of unlocked from the breath and it doesn't necessarily even have to yes. be synchronized with the breath. And a part of my mind was like, okay, what is the, what is the sort of point of this very specific, you know, thing that we're trying to do is like sweep these sensations over the entire breath. What import? That, that, that is not what we're trying to do. That is not the goal. Don't have any, I mean, you know, he talked, he called it banga. You know, total dissolution of the body, banga. But don't give it too much importance. 
the thing we need to give the most importance to is first developing the sensitivity of our mind to be able to feel these sensations that are happening throughout the whole body all the time, 24 seven, 365 days a year from the time we take birth till the time we die. As long as we have this material body, there are sensations. And if we keep making the effort, particularly on, on courses where we have fewer distractions to feel these sensations, these prevailing sensations that are happening as we speak right now too. But we are being extroverted, you know, you're looking at me, I'm looking at you, we're talking, we're thinking about what we're saying, you're listening. <clears throat> but you go into meditation, you stop thinking about other things, you just start moving, you're trying to move your attention throughout the body after, after you've, you've spent three and a half days here developing that sensitivity of the mind. The more we practice that, the more sensitive our minds become and the easier it becomes to, to, it, to feel these prevailing sensations. Yeah. That, that's one half of the technique. Mm -hmm. The other half of the technique is, well, I'll ask you, what do you think it is? Yeah, I feel like there are, uh, for me, one half is the end effort to increase this awareness and sensitivity. And the other half for me seems to be the cultivation of like non-judgmental acceptance of whatever is coming up. You got it. Equanimity. <laughs> That's what yeah. equanimity is. That's the definition of equanimity. Having no preference or prejudice towards whatever I'm experiencing yeah. at this particular emotion, at this yeah. particular moment. Uh, 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 mentally yeah. or physically. Yeah. Uh, so would you say that this kind of a continued practice has made you just, you know, more sensitive to all of life, including, you know, life experiences, interpersonal dynamics and, and, and sure. things like that as well? Sure. And, and the deeper we go, the more we can uh, experience, the more sensitivity uh, we, we can develop. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I saw that question there um, about uh, uh, what did you write? Uh, um, it was about like uh, if you can sense better other people's personalities, intentions, or emotions, for example, yeah, if they're lying yeah, or not. I don't know if yes, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, yes, that was uh, mm -hmm. can, can you, I wanted to read it again. To, okay, so, do you become extremely sensitive to your sensations to everything in life? Uh, and are you able to react properly to every situation? Is that the one? Yeah, that's yes. the one and the one after that. So, we develop more sensitivity to, to all things, yeah. particularly to what's happening inside of, inside of ourselves. Yeah. So, so that when we encounter these things outside of ourselves, we can feel them. But if we become good meditators, good in the sense of, of um, not reacting to these sensations and 
whatever's happening around us internal and also how it's affecting us internally, uh, we can just uh, observe it, accept it, not react to it. Yeah. There, there are, this is why, um, sometimes people on courses want to wear some, uh, um, uh, like a mask over their eyes, they cover their eyes or they put in, uh, earplugs in their ears or they cut, throw a, their shawl or blanket over their heads uh, while they're meditating. The, uh, they shouldn't be doing this. We have to, to talk to them and tell them that um, it's better that they don't do that. The reason being is that we are trying to develop the sensitivity of our mind and also the discipline of our mind to be able to do these do this observation of these sensations that are always arising and passing away without <clears throat> uh, um, shutting out everything else this, this is not uh, uh, sensory deprivation if, if yeah. we wanted to do that everybody could be sitting in their own se sensory deprivation tank you know with a perfect ph sailing <laughs> balanced, uh, warm, uh, uh, completely blacked out and uh, no access to, to sounds uh, outside. We want to be able to take what we learn on the course, what we practice on the course, back home with us to our day-to-day -day life. If we can't do that, then there's no purpose uh, to coming to these uh, retreats, these 10-day retreats, or however long they are. Mm, yeah. And, and uh, have you felt that it is, uh, this is sort of the remaining part of the question, that it becomes more transparent what people's um, intentions and personalities and nonverbal things are? You, you, can reach a, you can reach a stage where you can actually read other people's minds or know what they're, they're thinking. I mean, I understand that this is a little bit of a gimmicky thing, but I am uh, still curious because one of my friends who has been a long-time meditator once told me of an experience where he went to one of these uh, retreats and he said that he could kind of sense the emotional energy of the person who was meditating yeah. like next to him. Everything is vibration and you can feel vibration all around us, whatever they might be, the vibrations of a particular environment that I'm in or uh, vibrations of... of uh, somebody that is near to me yeah yeah uh, so uh, do you think that there are particular people or maybe certain psychological conditions or scenarios in which meditation can actually or vipassana meditation can actually be harmful no or have you no no it, it, observing these sensations and training our minds not to react to them will, will never it can never harm us in any way but what can happen and i've seen it happen several times on on courses yeah this is a process of purification mm -hmm. and if, if somebody's not working properly they can do some harm to themselves and um or it, uh this this technique is is so powerful so we're, we're working with the truth you know we start with anapana that's observation of the breath anapana 
by spending three and a half days here at the small area right below the nostrils and above the upper lip. Even this, when we start doing this, the operation of the mind automatically starts by uh, this truth is so powerful by observing this truth really pertaining to my mind and my body and the connection of what's happening in the small area. It automatically starts to shape things deep down inside of us. And I'm sure as you've experienced this on both of your, you've taken two courses now, right? Yeah. Yes. Autumn, this auto, by observing this truth and not reacting to it, it automatically starts to bring up these impurities that we all have, mm -hmm. everybody has. They start to bubble up to the surface. Mm. And depending upon the quality and quantity of these impurities that I have, you know, Goenkaji calls them sankaras, mm -hmm. which is just means conditioning of the mind. Mm -hmm. De depending upon those, when they come up and bubble up to the surface, they manifest themselves as some strong sensation here or there, yeah. or simultaneously as some strong emotion, some strong um, deep-rooted complex that's coming up. Yeah. And Vipassana does the same, but even more quickly or more effectively because we're working with the whole body. Our body holds the, the, the mind and the body cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that's, that's just a semantic uh, thing that we have, um, as humans, have developed. And uh, that's kind of, uh, it, it, it's not correct because there is no separation between mind and body. They're, they're working, it, it, they work together at all times. So by practicing this technique, things are going to come up, mm. these deep-rooted impurities, these sankharas. Mm. And at times, they could come up so with, with such a, a degree um, that, that they could create some unbalance to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and it might manifest as insomnia or, or uh, uh, my mind becoming unbalanced for a while. Mm -hmm. it, it shouldn't be too big of worry because <clears throat> I always tell people that Vipassana is not something that is done to us. This is something that we do, and we are always in control. Yeah. Meaning, we work at our own pace. We we don't know it, but there's kind of a governor inside of us that, for, for most of us, that <clears throat> we decide how much junk how much of these impurities, the sludge that we want to allow to come up at a certain amount of time. And that's why when, you know, you start at, uh, during those one hour group meditations or something like that, something starts coming up so, so strongly and so hard that you feel like you have to change your posture. Well, change your posture. It's not the end of the world. And 
And when you do that, it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm okay, you know, I'm not going to explode now, you know, I'm not going to catch on fire, or something like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, just imagining this uh, sort of holy grail that's at the end of this process is a kind of, I mean, it's, maybe it's just an imagination of a state of mind that is liberated from craving and aversion. But it seems too fantastic because it feels like we're just in a bondage of craving and aversion from the moment that we're born, even as babies. So that, is it, is it that, possible? Yeah. That is what pushed us into this body, this life, is our craving and our aversion. If we didn't have any of that, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So do you feel like through Vipassana practice, it is possible for a human being during their lifetime to reach a kind of state where they are like really free from craving and aversion? Absolutely. Without mm. question, without a doubt. Oh. It, 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 it's like uh, you're asking me that if I put some batteries into my, my dancing doll, you know, some batteries that I bought at Walmart, yeah. It's possible for that doll to stop dancing and for the batteries to run out and the doll to stop dancing. Ah, I see, I see. If we eradicate enough of these impurities, enough of these sankaras, mm-hmm. we will stop dancing. We will stop this craving and aversion. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one, one picture that, like, for example, where it is particularly difficult for me to imagine it, is suppose you are undergoing some extreme like physical pain. Is it possible for you to have no aversion towards it? Absolutely. Wow. Hey, Absolutely. Have you experienced that? Yes. <clears throat> oh. Through through Vipassana. If you keep meditating and keep working properly, mm. this might be hard for you to imagine having only sat two mm. 10-day courses, but I've sat more courses than I can remember. Uh, and even more more long courses than I can remember. And on long courses, we can really go go much more deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can reach a point where there is not a sensation that you can experience, mm-hmm. or that you experience that can overpower you or overwhelm you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what, what, what is pain? It, pain is, you know, he doesn't, after day four, he stops, he stops using the word pain. You don't hear him even mention the word pain anymore because uh, pain, you know, nobody wants any pain in their life. We, we all have enough pain in our lives. You know, pain has a negative connotation. He's talking about, he talks a lot about sensations, but he just calls those what we formally call painful sensations intense, gross, solidified sensations. Uh, But if you keep sitting through these storms, that's the technical term for having a lot of gross, intense, solidified sensations. If you keep sitting through those with equanimity, meaning, well, there's a part of my mind that's screaming and saying, oh, God, I hate this. This is torture. What the hell am I doing? You know, I'm killing myself. But there's another part of your mind the conscious part of your mind is saying, come on, don't be a wimp, man. It's just the sensation. Look, everybody else sitting like a statue of the Buddha. You know, the teacher keeps saying, this is, a, this is on each other. This is going to pass away. Chill out, man. Just keep observing it. You know, examine it like a doctor. You know, like it's not, not don't could be as so attached to this me. I mean, mine, you know, it's just, it's, 
that part becomes stronger and stronger. And mm. the more you develop that equanimity, the more you develop it, this fire that's burning so intensely, very quickly, the moment you stop reacting to it, immediately starts to lose its power over us. Mm. And you can pass through these storms one after another, and they lose their their the strength. Yeah. And eventually yeah. you start to realize they are just nothing but vibrations. Yeah, yeah. And you know, something that I've experienced, even though I consider myself like like a very beginner amateur practitioner is that Vipassana has really transformed my perspective on a lot of things about life. And for example, I feel like I do not grasp about uh, thoughts about what is going to happen to me in the future, where is my career going to go. I mean, a lot of grasping has kind of released even in interpersonal relationships or romantic relationships i notice that i don't grasp for the other person or a particular feeling anymore which is all great for me but i feel like a lot of other people are not on that same page and they find a lot of the ways in which i approach the world and and relationships with myself and my life and other people like quite odd and just they don't really understand what is going on and can this be real or healthy so have you felt this sense of like weird like alienation or not being on the same page or having any difficulties with interpersonal relationships because of the how the nature of our craving and aversion has been changed by vipassana no hmm. it, it just keeps getting clearer and clearer and better and better hmm. you know, i don't know if you remember or not um, the discourse on day seven, I think it is, where Goenkaji makes the statement that if I really am honest with myself and, yeah. and really examine my my mind, mm -hmm. I come to find out that I don't love anybody but myself. And for some people, this they have a hard time accepting that. But if you're really, really honest with yourself, I, I love others only so far is they fulfill my dreams, my expectations, my ambitions for them. The moment they stop doing that, I start blaming them or what's what's the matter? You know, you're mm. you're, what, you're you're not uh, you know fulfilling my dreams or my goals or my expectations. Whom am I loving? Mm. And by by realizing that and accepting that, it becomes clear to us what what do I want from this person, and, and how do I react when I don't get what I want uh, in my relationship with this person. And, and also, you can real it becomes more clear to you what this person wants from me, and I can choose whether or not I want to to give that to this person or, or do that for that person or whatever. Yeah. And, 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 the more uh, the more purity we develop, the more it doesn't matter uh, mm -hmm. to us about that because mm -hmm. we are freed from the expectations that we have from others. Because <clears throat> with expectations, there will always be disappointment. Mm -hmm. When someone stops acting, my wife or my husband or whatever, my partner doesn't do what I expect or want them to do, 
in the past, I might have started yelling at them, you know, why don't you do this? Or why do you say that? Or blah, blah, blah. It's all about me. But the more we develop this purity, compassion automatically has to arise with that. And you might stop and say, oh, why is he yelling at me? Why is she yelling at me? You know, what, what, what is it that, uh, you know, what is, it, what is really troubling her, my mother, my father, my, my, my lover, or whatever it is? What is their problem? And am I really, can, can, how, how can I help them? And, and, and am I really capable of helping them? So since we have about 15 minutes left, maybe in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you some of the more sort of uh, higher priority questions for myself. And one of these, particularly for me, is that, you know, I feel like meditation has really completely transformed my life for the better. Um, but like I said in the email, one of the premises that we learned in a case like the Buddhist sort of maybe like the philosophy is that there is this continuous flow of life through moment by moment craving and aversion that is giving rise to the content of the next self. And then all of the sankharas at the end of the light kind of crystallize to give birth to the next instantiation of the mind. And the objective of this Vipassana is to reach a state where the flow of craving and aversion stops and therefore we are liberated from this cycle of life and death. And, 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 death. and, and that, you know, the prem, one of the premises is that life is suffering. And as I was hearing that, I was thinking, you know, very honestly speaking, I have a hard time with that. For me, I feel like I mostly enjoy life. And if there's an option available, I would want to keep living more life. Of course. So of course. Should I abandon meditation? No, 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 no. We, 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 of course. Hmm. The, but there are three things. Every time we take a life, mm -hmm. I mean, we, every time we, we come into existence here, we will always have to face the big three. What are the big three? Hmm. Old age, disease, and death. Yeah. And if you've ever, you're 22 right now, right? I'm 32. Oh, I'm sorry, 32. Then, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, you're young, you're healthy. But if you've ever been around anybody, you know, a grandmother or if you've worked in a hospital, been around anybody, Who's passing through any of these three things or all three of these things at the same time could be it's very clear they're not having fun they are suffering so so at age 32 <clears throat> it might be difficult for you to to picture uh i mean you're so far your 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 life has been good there's been you know i don't know if anyone near and dear to you has passed away or uh, you've had a pet that's passed away. You can you can uh, observe the suffering, um, but there will come a time. I I guarantee you, where you start to realize, wow, you know, um, this is not. I'm not having fun. This is not uh, enjoyable. Hmm. And 
if I have really experienced anicca uh, within the framework of my body and, and uh, at, at deeper levels, I can accept this smilingly, calmly, up, up until my last breath. Mm. Um. This is something that, that uh, again, you are in control. You pick and choose how happy do I want to become in this life? And if I want to live seven more lives, well, fine, you can do that. You'll you'll be able to do that, <laughs> or or seventy, seven hundred, whatever. Yeah. But again, you are not. We are not able to pick and choose uh, on this supposedly these thirty-two planes of existence, yeah. which uh, plane I will be born in again in my next life it all depends upon my sankaras or my parmis or my karma or whatever you want to whatever term you want to give it and another thing that i felt a little bit un unfair was that if the path to liberation seems to require such a carefully curated headspace that a 10-day meditation retreat, for example, can provide, and, you know, some other people, you know, become a monk and go to a monastery, such an option is not even conceivable to a lot of people who are born under situations of great hardship and in, in war. Sure. Um, so, so what, what about them? It, it feels like the whole universe and cosmology must be like very cruel for no, so no. is this the karma of their past lives? Or... Yes, yes. Mm. The, the, the cosmology or whatever you call it, kar karma has no, uh, there, there's no cruelty. There, there's nothing. We are here because of our, song kar our, our karma. Mm. And you have some very good karma. That you have your health. Yeah. Uh, you're... You know, the Buddha, in one of his, his discourses, he talks about being born as a human being. Hmm. What an unusual event that is. Hmm. What amazingly good karma. And he says, that, imagine throwing a, a, not an inner tube, they didn't have inner tubes at the time of the Buddha, but um, some flotation device like an inner, inner tube, um, throwing it into the Atlantic Ocean from the, the continent of Africa. And then imagine a turtle leaving uh, um, from from Brazil or the Amazon, swimming underwater, swimming uh, towards the uh, African continent, swimming underwater, underwater for, for, for weeks, and then suddenly coming up in the great Atlantic Ocean uh, with its head in the middle of that inner tube or whatever that, that thing was, floating thing throughout the Atlantic. What are the chances of that happening? The Buddha says being born as a human being, the chances of that are even infinitesimally, I can't pronounce that word, infinitesimally. Infinitesimally. Yes, thank you. Greater, that are better of having our heads or the turtle coming up under with its head in the center of that energy than us being born as a human being. And the reason the human human being plane is so remarkable, 
so unique is that we can experience all 32 planes of existence in this human life from the, the, the greatest uh, uh, bl bliss of liberation all the way down to the, uh, the deepest hells. But every, every time we get angry, we are tuning up to those vibrations of the lower planes. Mm. <clears throat> okay, this is a little bit maybe a... So, so, so back to your, yeah. your personal karma. Don't, yeah. don't throw yeah. this away. So you, you know, I've conducted these courses inside the, uh, a, the maximum security prison in Alabama, hmm. where a lot of those guys are in there for life because they've murdered somebody. And they start complaining to me about, you know, oh, I can't do this and stuff like that. And I say, you know, if you come and tell me I don't want to do this, I'll say, oh, now you're telling the truth, maybe. But if you tell me I can't do this because of, you know, this and that, I'll say, that's a bunch of BS. You, you have to make a decision of whether or not you want to truly become happy. Yeah. <clears throat> I tell them, though, that there's two indisputable pieces of evidence that they have the ability to do this. The first one is that they're born as a human being. And I tell them that story about how unique this is. You're not an alligator. You're not a mosquito. You're not a dragonfly or whatever. They can't do that. They can't, they don't have the faculties, the ability to do the self-observation as we do. Mm. By, doing the self-observation on this body, material body that we have to be able to feel these sensations. That's very unique. And, and the, the other wildly uh, unique uh, uh, piece of karma is you are sitting in front of me. I don't know what you did to get, get into this prison, you know, and I don't care. But you are sitting in front of me on a course you've come in this dark prison you know where they get you guys kill each other in here they may do murder each other in there sometimes you know when i was there one time in a fight in the, in the yard uh somebody bit off the other guy's nose to stop a fight because it's pretty painful to get your nose bitten off i, I didn't see this happen i saw one of them in, in the uh, sick bay but uh, they look pretty bad I said, this is a hellhole where you're living in, but look at all the billions of people uh, outside of this prison who have no idea that there is a path of liberation, that there is a technique to, to where one can, through his or her efforts, liberate themselves. And for that to happen, that is the result of some amazingly good karma. So don't throw it away. Don't treat that lightly. Something has given... Is it, not and not only did you come to one course something you understood on that course you practiced enough to get the benefits and to realize there's something good about this there's something beneficial to this that made you come back to another course mm -hmm. yeah. don't treat that lightly put that in your pocket and, and yeah. keep developing that that is is the first quality of enlightenment that is devotion but that's not blind devotion. That's something that you experienced yourself. That's not something that you heard from some gringo in, in Illinois, you know, who sits on that high seat sometime. That's not something you heard from a discourse on a TV. That's not something you read in a book. That's something that you've experienced now twice. Experience it first. And you know that from your experience, that second course you took was not the same as your experience on your first course. 
I'm, I hope to see you in India sometime on a 30-day course or a 45-day course or a 60-day course yeah. to see the results that you get. Yeah, I, I think it was after my fourth course in, in Japan, I met a guy who had sat a 45-day court, course. I thought he was crazy. <laughs> this this is so hard. This is so difficult. So, yeah. so challenging. How could anyone in their right mind do this for 45 days? They have to be crazy. Yeah. But about three or four years later, I think it was three years, I was on a 20-day, 30-day, 45-day course, 60-day course. You, you can do it. And if you keep you know, the courses are challenging, but we keep coming back because of the benefits. My yeah, parents yeah. have said, they did their first course out of devotion to one of their children who said, I want you to come and do this because I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I want you to know what I'm doing. I want you to check it out for me. Yeah. I tricked them. They came out of devotion to, to, to me. But they ended up, my mother sat three courses and my father sat four courses. They didn't do mm -hmm. those, those other courses out of devotion to me. They came back and, mm -hmm. and did those because they got results from the first course. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of your words it seem to be a kind of repeated encouragement to take more like personal responsibility for the path uh, that we are on. And, uh, you know, you, you're, you also seem to be reminding us that, you know, if you, if you if you do it, you're going to see, if you do it properly, you are going to see the results. There's like, no. I could sit here and talk to you all day for, for yeah. every day of the year. And it's not going to, I mean, you might enjoy it and stuff. But the real benefits come from going through these courses and, and or, or wherever we are. Just two things, observing these sensations, feeling them, and trying not to react to them. Yeah. Sooner or later, I didn't learn the word Vipassana until my third course. It didn't matter to me. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and I couldn't pronounce that word. It, 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 all I knew was anyone who, who sat there and made an honest effort to start to feel these sensations and train their minds not to react to them. Sooner or later, they were going to become liberated from all of their complexes, all of their misery, all of their their their. Uh, the things that uh, uh, make them suffer in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so if you could go back in time and meet the young Tim, maybe around my age, like 30-something years old, would you yeah. have something to tell young Tim? Absolutely. I would tell You know, I, t I told you I, I took my first course when I was 33. Let me, let me turn off that timer because yeah. it'll... Uh, I can't be called and quantumous with that. Yeah. How are you? Have you ever done or said anything you regret? Yeah, so many yeah. times. Yeah. Who hasn't? We all have. Yeah. Well, I, I before I was 33, before I came to my first course, there were many things that I have done and, and said that I regret very much. Hmm. And I would recommend to that pre-Vipassana Tim Don't do anything bad. Don't say or do things that uh, are unhealthy, that are unwholesome, and try to do only good things, things that are healthy and wholesome. And we all know what those are. We don't need to be told what those things are. Everybody 
knows deep down inside what's good and what's bad, what's what's healthy and what's unhealthy, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we are at 4.30, but if you've got one more minute, I want to ask you the final question. Yeah, you, we, we can we can talk. Uh, it, it's okay. We, yeah. let's, okay. Let's clear. This is, I enjoy uh, answering as, as many questions. I, don't, I want there... I want you to be completely clear. I want there to be clarity in your mind about what yeah. what you're doing, and and, uh, yeah. and and if if there anything you can get anything from this conversation, and the, it, uh, uh, if you get <clears throat> what do I want to? How do I say this? If you even get a drop of encouragement to continue on this path you're on, uh, it'll make this whole uh, conversation yeah. worth it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, okay, so my final question is, what do you think is the effect of current technology on our minds and society, and what connection does it have to mindfulness? You know, I was just, when was this? I was just talking with a friend of mine about how I feel oftentimes nostalgic for um, like 90s or 2000s era technology. Uh, (laughs) I feel like, I mean, this might be a mischaracterization, but you know, I grew up in the 90s and I felt like it was around the 90s or the 2000s when technology was still about improving uh, what a human being can do and things like that. And at some point, I think it reached the peak of its ability to service mankind. And then after that, it became more of a self-serving thing um, where it turned into how do we get human beings to buy more of this and get hooked on more of this, etc. And uh, so I have actually toyed multiple times with the idea of going back to something like a flip phone because it feels like its, it's ambition is not to control my mind and my habits. It's still a tool. It's, 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 it's more like a, a slave, not a master of the mind. But unfortunately, given everything else I'm linked up with, with my academic yeah. life and email, it's just it's, it's too much detachment. It's not really possible. So, um, so I have now settled for a used iPhone five from like, I don't know, 10 years ago and I refuse to update it. That's, <laughs> uh, it can be done. You know, yeah. I've been using that flip like just recently. This isn't my, my new, this is a uh, new this year. I don't like it because it's bigger than my, my last <laughs> one. At the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the little one, you know, but, uh, yeah. It was lighter, and uh, yeah. And I don't have, I don't use any of the, uh, even though uh, Google Maps. I I had a smartphone for a while for my job. I needed to. I was transporting um, non-emergency uh, medical patients. Oh. Uh, but now you know I get to. I'm in in a place called Edwardsville, Illinois, right now. And when I drive down to Texas, mm-hmm. I do it the way that maybe you've never done, and that's by using a map. Yeah, no, I have done that, actually. Yeah. I have done that because if you, it, it's hard to remember this, but I think all of these innovations in internet and map technology actually happened fairly recently. 
Yes. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I uh, got an opportunity for an exchange program in Germany. That's the first time I went out of India. Mm. And I was in Germany for three and a half months and I took full advantage of that opportunity to backpack all around Europe because they give you a Schengen visa, which is good for uh, most of most of Europe. Yeah. And the internet technology, smartphone technology was not good enough then. You just, you know, you could look up, I, I would go to Google Maps and then I would print out some directions and I would just take them with me to a whole other country. And then the first thing I would do is I would arrive at the train station and European cities are usually clustered around some kind of a central train station or something. And there would be tourist booths and I would go into one of those places and get one of those free maps with a bunch of advertisements on the other side. And I would just do it by map, by, by foot most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of people would be freaked out by the prospect of that today. It, it works though, doesn't it? I like yeah. maps. Yeah, I like yeah, yeah. look at maps. <laughs> Particularly, I've started to believe that a big challenge is now upon our generation. And I feel like the effect of a lot of current day technology is to sort of hypnotize us away from the from from the real world. And do you do you think that my fears are exaggerated? No. <laughs> and, and I can tell you that because two days ago my TV stopped working. <laughs> or go lose your phone for two days and see how it changes your life yeah you know the, that question is who is my master hmm. who is your master and, hmm. and these devices that we have you know i i tell you i'm vintage hmm. a, a lot of, i i was talking to um i, I was just i just uh was in um I just came back from sitting at South Course there in, in um, at Domiciri there in Texas, and I was talking to the teacher there, and he was recommending that that uh, I be on um, uh, What's Up. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have that on, on my phone. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I have, I said, but then people could reach me all the time, and, and uh, they would be, you know, I, I, they'd be asked, writing things to me and I'd have to answer. And I said, I have enough trouble keeping up with my email. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> In fact, that's what I have two more Zoom calls today. And, and we're, they're with students that, that want to talk to me, one about her, her meditation, and another one uh, about uh, registration. <clears throat> We, as people, have to decide uh, to draw a line around ourselves, you know, how much do I want to, to be engaged with things outside of myself, other, uh, you know, email to me is, is a, a blessing and a curse at the same time as far as um, I remember the days of writing letters and licking the stamp and mailing letters to people. And there's such a, um, a a letter. It's so different from email. You know, it's got the personality of your handwriting and uh, or more. How many emails have you sent that, that after you sent them? You thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have sent that email. You know, and 
especially when I hit reply all instead of to one, one, uh, you know, the person I was writing the email to and things like that. Uh, you know, all of these technologies come with there. Yeah, there's some benefit to them, but they come with a, a curse too, and we have to uh, pick and choose how. And, and this is another reason why I could have stayed here in my home and taken that 10 day self course here. Mm. But to be in that environment of a meditation center where I could sit in the pagoda for the, the, the 10 days uh, is so much better for me to be in that environment where there is no temptation of wanting to check my phone or to turn on the TV or to get, to answer my emails or whatever it is that um, you've got to pick and choose. Everyone has to pick and choose for themselves. So but, uh, that's why I, uh, I recommend you, you come serve a course you, and that'll help you because when we're serving, we've got one foot in the meditating world, and but in the, another foot in the extrovert work world, because we have to communicate with the other servers. You know who's got the <clears throat> who's preparing the salad today, and and who's doing this, and did you remember to put out this, and and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and then we go meditate. Uh, we do all the meditate all those three group sittings and stuff. And I I found when I first started ser serving. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> when I would go back to my day-to-day -day life and go back to work, work it made my job so much easier uh, because I was still kind of had one foot in the down down world there, mm. and I could interact with people better, more more healthily, and um, it, it was a good good experience, and so. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to, you know, Gregory recommends that we sit at least one of these 10 day courses a year. Well, my when I first started sitting, I think I sat four or five 10 day courses in my first year because yeah. I thought I, I need this. I need to. And I would, what would happen? I went back home for the first three weeks, you know, everything I was meditating twice a day, things are fine. But then my meditation started getting weaker and weaker and I'd start reacting again, the same old habit pattern, same old knee jerk reaction, getting angry with people, this and that. It's like, man, Tim, time for you to go back to Kyoto and do another one of those 10 day things, you know? Yeah. So related to that final, final question, what you, don't, you don't have to keep saying that. Let's, let's get them all cleared up. At least okay, one. okay. I was just wondering because you had uh, the other Zoom call. Uh, so what does your uh, regular practice look like when you're not at a retreat twice daily for an hour there there are some times when i i have missed the evening the meditation evening meditation is always more challenging for me but you know Gregory says for those who who for the first year uh after their their course who make a, a, a strong effort to uh, do their daily meditation. If they can do that for a year, they will do that for the rest of their life. Mm. Yeah. The, the morning meditation it has always been easier for me. Get up, 
do my business, go use the toilet, and then just make that the first thing I do hmm. for the day and go sit on my cushion. Uh, it, it's helpful if if you've got a place where you can meditate, where there's no distractions, even if it's just the corner of your room where nothing else happens in that corner. You don't, you don't have a desk there. You don't have any devices there or anything like that. And and you meditate in the same place every day. You you can build up these vibrations of anti-creating, anti-aversion. I remember I had a, a in Japan a room devoted a small room off of my in my apartment where nothing else happened in that room, just meditation. And if I found that if I could get myself into that room. It was like the, the the baseball empire umpire saying, "Safe." It was immediately it was so easy, you know, to go. <laughs> yeah, and then I could start meditating. I had to get my whole body though up, you know, turn off the TV or whatever it was. I re stop reading the newspaper, whatever it was, I was doing, to get my whole body up into. But and to get myself into that room in the evening. <laughs> I, I made a, a vow to myself, and that is, I would not allow myself. Cause I worked. I, I had a, a, a stressful job, um, and and my hours were not always the same. It, it's helpful if you could do it at the same time every every uh, time. Yeah. But that wouldn't happen, and so I made a vow to myself that I wouldn't allow myself to eat dinner until uh, I had meditated in the evening, and. So that was helpful because I was always hungry. I wanted to eat my dinner. But the other thing was I could not first eat dinner before I meditated because then I would just fall asleep during my meditation. Yeah. I was just too groggy. And so. Yeah. 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 Do you ever feel bored of meditating? Oh, yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad you, you remember. I saw that question. People ask me that on, on courses a lot. Uh, telling me that they are bored themselves. What is boredom? Think about what boredom is first. Yeah, I feel like boredom for me is an inability to keep my attention on one thing. It's like yes. a kind of like a jitteriness. It doesn't want to stay there. It's just this energy that wants to visit many different things. Right. Like, like restlessness. Sure. And, and why do we does our mind want to do that why does it want to go to these place places well there's a reason for that <clears throat> but a, a, a clear definition of boredom is i am not satisfied at this particular moment with what is my mind is not satisfied at this particular moment of what is i want something that is not Meaning, uh, say if it happens while I'm on a course, well, I want fireworks, I want this, I want that, I want my phone, I want to talk to my phone, I want to check my phone, I want this, I want that. There it is, craving. I want this, I want that, I want this. That's the mind. That's how our minds work. Or I don't like what's happening at this particular, particular moment. I, I don't like what I'm feeling, or I don't like uh, the mind space I'm in at this particular moment. I don't, there's aversion, craving and aversion. And, and that's the game, is to realize, oh, there's my mind. 
doing that again. Smile at it. There's my monkey mind. Shake hands with the monkey. Say, okay, I see you there. Okay. Here's your banana. Right here. Let's go here. I got a little banana for you. And start breathing slightly harder. Whether you're meditating or not, or whether you're at work or not, wherever you are. You, you, this is your anchor in the storm at any time. Anytime you want to get control of your mind, anytime you want to calm down your mind, uh, even if you're dying, whatever. Anyone who brings their attention back to this this small area below the nostrils, above the upper lip, and starts to makes the effort to try to feel what's happening there or to feel the touch of the breath, the mind will automatically calm down. It will automatically get focused. And then you can continue to do whatever it is that you were trying to do, whether it be Vipassana, trying to move your attention to the body or uh, focusing on your work or whatever it was at, at that particular moment. Yeah. This is, this is an amazing tool here. This is a, and, and it's not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's not a, a, a Vipassana thing. This is a reality. Anybody, doesn't matter who, what, uh, whatever they believe. Anyone who, who makes the effort, who brings their attention back to this, this little area below the nostrils, above the upper lip, right where they join, and tries to feel what's happening in that area or tries to feel the touch of the breath, as it comes in and out, not trying to manipulate the breath in any way, just feel the touch of it, their mind will automatically calm down. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, team. If you do that, I don't believe anything you've heard on, yeah. on this, uh, in this talk. Experience it all for yourself, but in particular, when, if you are feeling boredom, whether you're meditating or sometime in your life, Come back here and see see what's happening here, and your boredom will go away. Mm. All right, Tim. That was all my questions. I have not a single question that is left unanswered. I really want to thank you a lot, and I know, you know, I didn't realize that you had that, you know, the camera shyness thing happening. So I want to thank you especially for like, you know. No, uh, I, was, to, yeah. I wanted to t just tell you what, what, what that was about was at first, you know, when people come during the course and they start to ask me personal questions, mm. I stop them immediately and say, you know, I, I don't mind answering personal questions, but uh, if I start to answer them, you're going to get distracted and, and then you're going to have another question and another question right now. You know, it's my job there. The, my job is to bring people back to the technique uh, and uh, I said you came here to examine yourself not the teacher so I, I I'm everybody has their own personal experience uh, who, who everyone who goes to comes to these courses but uh, I was afraid of you using this to as some kind of um uh, I, I, I didn't want this to be like a, a discourse or a, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> but when you sent me the, the questions i thought oh well these are just questions you know these and these are good questions and, and uh I'm, I'm always happy to answer uh questions about the technique uh or related to the technique and, and uh 
again, how, how the technique has helped me in my personal life, I, I don't have a, a problem of you know, answering those. I'm always happy to. I, All right. Well, thank, thanks a lot, Tim, for your for your I, I, mean, I, wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you a question, though. Yeah, uh, if you don't yeah. mind. Um, how is your practice? Yeah, I would say I'm not sitting for two hours every day. My regular practice has been basically just 15 minutes of anapana, which is what which is something that I've been doing for about seven years now. Wait, wait. You you did. I thought you did your first course in two thousand and seventeen. Yeah, but I've been doing anapana since before my first. Okay. Yeah. And, and so you've been doing it for fifteen minutes for seven years. Yeah, every day. And, and why don't you do vipassana? Oh, I would say that the times that I do vipassana or I have done vipassana is only during the two times that I went to the retreat because you know it's like part of the protocol and I would say that I would describe the main reason as since I kind of learned anapana first and I became like pretty comfortable with that practice it seems to present like fewer obstacles to me I'm like I know how to do it and I can like uh, so vipassana for me is challenging and i'm just <laughs> going to acknowledge it that you know if um and, yeah, and i feel like, like yeah when you say the challenging that again vipassana the real reason why we don't want to do it or why there's resistance there is because it works it starts to it's not fun it's not a walk in the yeah. park anyone who starts to observe these sensations on the body and train their mind not to react to them it's not going to feel good. I mean, it's not, yeah. a, 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 you know, it, it brings up stuff. Yeah. And people don't like that. And yeah. so, I, and then a lot of times, not, not, not that many times, but it, it can happen. I've seen it happen on courses where a student after three and a half days of Anapana, they've had some pe very peaceful, very calm experiences by just, they've calmed down the mind to such a degree. That when we start to practice vipassana, they don't like it, and they don't yeah, want yeah. to do vipassana, and they want to keep coming back to, to anapana. Yeah, that's definitely happened to me. And and that <clears throat> is a great hindrance, because that means that we do have preference, we do have prejudice, and that we are seeking this bliss this ecstasy and that will come if we purify our minds at a deeper level but we have to, to to in order to reach that stage we have to to walk through some ugly stuff of this this self observation of, of these impurities as as they come to the surface and manifest themselves somewhere on the body as this sensation this pain or ache there and, and this this unpleasant sensation here or there or whatever. And, and if the goal were just to, to achieve some pleasant, peaceful sensation, well, there'd be nothing wrong with just doing anapana or, or working with some image or some mantra. It's very easy to get the mind focused or concentrated working with an image or a mantra, some, some uh, imagination or some, some visualization or some verbalization. 
with vipassana it's that's not fun but anyone who really wants to purify their mind at a deeper level or at the deepest level they have to work with the whole body and they have to work with these at the sensational level and they have to start to work on learning how to observe these sensations for their true nature to and start to feel their true nature and that is the phenomenon of these sensation which is the truth of these sensations that none of them are permanent and every sensation that we're having is arising and passing away arising and passing away passing away that is the purification process so would you say that you know, if I say it's not like all or nothing, but let's say I have 15 minutes uh, and I know that the ideal thing is to spend two hours. But if I have 15 minutes, would you say it's still better to be doing Vipassana then rather than Anapana? Well, one thing you should clear up in your mind is, you know, people often tell me that they're too busy to meditate, uh, yeah. you know, two hours a day because they got this and they got that and they got all these excuses. And I ask them, well, who is the master of your life? Who's your boss? I want to talk to your boss. You know, some of them joke, say, well, that's my wife, you know, or my, my kid or whatever. <laughs> There's only one thing we have to do in life. Everything else is a choice. What is that one thing we have to do? I don't know, breathe, I guess. No, we don't have to breathe. We can stop breathing. What happens if we stop breathing? Oh, I guess we die eventually. We die. That's yeah. the only thing. Ah. That is the only thing we have to do in life. Yeah. Everything else is a choice. So don't, you know, don't, don't, uh, if you want to delude yourself and, and play those games like, well, I got this and I got that. You are your own master and you are the one who chooses your priorities. Hmm. And, you know, right now, if becoming happy or happier is not your priority, well, that's your choice. But if you really, you know, sometimes people, those guys in prison, most of them work really hard. They work harder than the people outside of that prison, even though we are all prisoners of the old habit pattern of our minds. Doesn't matter whether we're locked up somewhere or not. <clears throat> The reason they work harder than people norm, the normal, the, the so-called population, uh, normal, they really understand suffering uh, at a deeper level. And they really understand that if I do this, even though I am living in this hellhole and that I might not ever get out of this hellhole because I'm, uh, you know, I've got, I'm sentenced to, to seven years or life without parole or whatever. They're suffering, they're suffering so much because they've actually killed another human being or done some pretty heinous, they've got some pretty heavy car karma there that they have to face. And they take this very seriously because they re realize that, well, this really I, does make me feel better and cope better with this environment that I'm living in. And but you're, you know, you're, you're 32 and, and you've got a great life and there's not real suffering happening there so there's not a real whole lot of, of, of motivation for you to to want to sit down and really experience these these uh, tougher 
experiences of whatever these sensations might present to us. And, and um, but that's that's your choice. That's your 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 karma. And and um, it's uh, it's entirely up, up to you. But my mo main motivation in the beginning of um, my earlier courses was. I realized I was so grateful to my mother and father because of the life that they had given to me and the efforts they made to. They devoted themselves to all four of us uh, kids. There's four of us, my brother and sisters. I was so grateful to them for that. And also, I, I hadn't spoken to them for five years while I lived in Japan. That was one of the reasons why I was in Japan. And I didn't have a telephone, so they couldn't reach me. I was so angry with them. And I realized on my first course, this has got to stop. This is so unhealthy for me and so unhealthy for them. Uh, I need to make some real changes in my life. And I realized that why they did everything that they did. You know, my mother was an alcoholic. My father used to be prone to violence. Uh, and he was abusive. I realized that they were just continuing the things that what they knew that was all that they knew and they were considering they were just stuck in this cycle and i realized that as i was the only person so far in my family who had come across this technique of liberation it was a huge responsibility because i i i was would be the only one who could tell them that they don't have to suffer anymore, that they could actually come out of their suffering. That was my inspiration for those first uh, five courses that I sat, is that I need to make some deep changes in myself before I go back and talk to them about Vipassana, because if there aren't any changes in me, they're, they're just going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to actually see some changes in their son. It was on my sixth course when the thought arose to me in the middle of the course, what if they die? before I talked to them about Vipassana. Then it scared me. I thought, oh, I, I need to make the effort to go back and after this course sometime or the next course, whatever. I need to start communicating with them and, and go back and talk to them. And so I started to write them each in letters individually. And, and my mother responded, but my father didn't respond. And wrote a couple more letters to my mother and said, you know, I said, I need to hear from him before I come back and visit. He, and he still wouldn't do that. And I realized, okay, one of us has to be the adult in this relationship. And he he's the one who, who still he holds some grudge or something. It's like, I need to, to be the adult and just not, not worry about that. So I went, did another course. I think it was in Massachusetts. Then flew into to St. Louis, borrowed my sister's bicycle, had, had a tent and a sleeping bag. It was one of the hottest summers on record in Missouri. Rode across state, took eight days. I did that just to kind of for training for myself. Camped in their backyard, came up occasionally to have lunch with them or dinner or something, but I didn't want to stay in their house. I was camping in their backyard. One of those lunches, my father and I were about to, to the, we'd fall back into our old patterns of you know, reacting and pointing fingers and, you know, we were about to draw our swords and butt heads again. And, and uh, 
because I had done seven, six or seven courses that had time. You know, Goikiji talks about that private secretary that's on duty 24 hours a day, that one that is our sensations. I, I was at least sensitive enough. They started shouting at me, look, master, look, master, anger, anger. <laughs> and I, and I caught myself and said, oh, yeah. wait a minute, I'm blowing it. I said, I didn't come, I'm sorry, I didn't come all the way back here from Japan to, to uh, you know, fight with anybody. This is, I'm just reacting, I'm reacting badly. And I said, as you can see, I'm still very immature in both my life and this technique. Please, you, you'll be doing yourself a great disservice if you judge this technique by me and my immaturity. Mom, uh, can, can you loan me one of your guest bedrooms? So I, I need to, to meditate for three days. Can you load me, loan me one of your better bedrooms there? And Mom, would you be kind enough to, to give me some little bit of a non, uh, some, some vegetarian, something to eat at, at 11 o'clock in the morning, some non-vegetarian food? I'll get up and, and do my own breakfast at, at uh, uh, 6.30 in the morning when you guys are still in bed. And, and, and just not talk to me, you know, not, don't just let me be alone there in that room for three days. And of course, mothers, because they love their sons, she was happy to serve, serve they, 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 they love their children, she was happy to serve me. And my father didn't have any objection to that. And so I sat this three day self course in their one of their spare bedrooms, and worked really hard because I knew I had to, to change if I was going to attract them to this, this technique. And when I came out of that course, the whole atmosphere of the house had changed. This thing called Dhamma, the vibrations of Dhamma, which is nothing but, but anti-craving, anti-aversion, and, and compassion and love. It, it had changed to that. And when I came out of that course, they felt something. The whole atmosphere of the house had changed. And that is when they agreed. They had agreed then to, okay, we'll come and do a course. We'll try it. And, and uh, it would be six months later over Christmas. Uh, I went back to Japan. Came, six months later, I flew back to the U.S. Uh, into into Dallas. Met them uh, at a hotel. We we stayed there, and then uh, um, there was a ride share. We came the next day to Damasiri, and they sat there uh, first course, and I sat it too with them, so that um, they would, if they ever, I said, if you ever get discouraged or we're lost or something, just open your eyes, and you'll see me sitting up there going through the same thing you are and hmm. suffering, <laughs> trying to work out my salvation. On day 10, you know, Metta Day, the talking day, the, when my mother saw me, she was crying. I'll never forget the first words out of her mouth was, you must really love us a lot to, to have brought us here. And my father, it was a Kodak moment, you know, my father who, who but the only emotion he'd ever ex expressed in his life around us kids was was anger and, and violence. Uh, he wanted to put his arm around me. And, uh, the next thing my mother said was, "It's so logical." You know, she's a musician, and and uh, she was a, a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and. She, my father was a chemical engineer and, and she used to argue, when they would argue sometimes she'd complain to him, you know, you always have to be so logical. Like logical is a bad, bad thing. And, and, um, 
But that's the, the next thing that she said about Vipassana is it's so logical. And the third thing she said is, I wish Pat, my sister that has children, I wish Pat would come and, and try it. Seven months later, uh, they met me. I, I flew in from Japan again in Seattle. And we met up there, and they sat their second course. And the first thing my mother said when she saw me was, were those discourses the same ones we had? Those, those are different. Those aren't the same discourses we heard on our first course. And I said, Mom, those are the exact same discourses. You know, it's just that we have this thing called Sanya. You know, we, we our mind plays tricks on us. And, and uh, as I'm sure that you, the discourses you heard on the second course were a little bit different than the, what you heard on the first course, weren't they? I do remember, if that's not what I experienced, what I did experience was that my reaction to them were different. Okay. I remember during my first course, I was still like, oh, this is kind of woo-woo. Some of those things I was having like a kind of like judgment against. Sure. Especially when Goenkaji would talk about the little vibrations and things like that. I would be like, nah, I'm a physicist. That's not really how that works, etc." So the next time I noticed that my response to the discourses was like quite different. Were, were the second course, were you a little more receptive to what he yeah. was saying? Particularly about those things he called kalapas. Yeah. As a physicist, you know, the, the, yeah. the, he, you know, he, some people call them bubbles or something like that. But the yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in fact, after the, after the vow of silence was lifted, in the men's dorm room, it, in the second course, it, you know, people were just like in the hallway talking. And one of them was exactly talking as if from my perspective in the first course. And they were saying, hey, you're, you're a physics PhD. Is this really how these subatomic particles work? Blah, 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 etc. And I remember I was telling him that I don't think it's all that important exactly how, what the physicists find out how it works. You know, I, I feel like the import of that too and its relevance to the practice and what is trying is being trying to be communicated is is what is important and the particular physical details of that no matter how that turns out is not really <laughs> that important and <laughs> just i was like wow the first time i came here i, I was I, I did not have that attitude yeah, absolutely you did you did good and and uh yeah. your third course will be even better in that, in that respect as well too and your fourth course and you and you're then wait until you do a long course <clears throat> the deeper we go the the more we can understand particularly about this thing you call it physics but what is physics from what my small understanding of it is physics is nothing but an articulation of the laws of nature uh, would you, is that a fair thing to, to yeah, say? Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. <clears throat> I can tell you, I think, with a fair degree of certainty, too, that at this particular moment, uh, our capability as, uh, as humans and the way we communicate is that there are some aspects of physics that we cannot articulate. But, but it doesn't, like you said, Good, you know, like Gwengiji says too, if there's parts of the discourse you can't uh, uh, agree to or that you don't believe or whatever, you know, fine. You know, like he says, take it, take that thing, that black thing out of your cure. Yeah. 
uh, don't, don't you just enjoy your cure without it you know it's it'll be yeah. good you know later on if you realize that that's cardamom it also mm -hmm. has its own taste its own flavor only only uh, that's why i tell people too don't ever believe anything you hear from me me or anybody else don't believe it until you experience because only then will we, we do we get the, the benefit from it I, I forgot that you, that's what you're, I forget, I wanted to ask you, that's, um, physics is, is what you're doing your PhD in. I can remember in Massachusetts, there was a guy uh, on the course there. Uh, he was a, a little bit older gentleman, uh, maybe in his 50s. And he taught physics at Harvard. Hmm. He was from Nepal. Uh, but he, he's teaching physics at Harvard, and he also was a doctor. Uh, he, he had a medical degree uh, and a PhD in something else besides physics. I don't remember what it was. Maybe uh, quantum mechanic. Uh, I guess that's physics. But some, maybe um, uh, bioengineering or something. I don't know. But anyway, pretty smart guy, you know. And he's teaching at one of the most elite universities in, in the world. Yeah. And I was always amazed at his difficulties that he was having doing this technique. Mm -hmm. And I shouted at him, too, uh, saying, your intellect is so strong mm -hmm. that it has become a great hindrance to you. Because look at the difficulties you're having doing this technique. He continually was always trying, doing this, this intellectual analyzation, mm. analyzing mm. of this technique. And that was an intellectual exercise. He could not, for the life of him, could bring his attention onto the body like you're having difficulty with Vipassana, which that's what Vipassana is, and to feel these sensations. He just kept wanting to break things down. And I told him, I said, you know, up until now, your intellect has served you very well. You know, you, you came from not so great conditions there in Nepal to become this very renowned teacher of physics at one of the most elite universities in the world. And it has served you well in that respect, but now it has become a great obstacle to you and your progress. You need to become aware of that. And if you want to make any progress on this path of, of liberation from this conditioning of the mind of repeating this habit pattern of things that are unwholesome and unhealthy for us, they're hindering you from getting closer to a deeper truth than just this intellectual understanding that you have of the material and some of the material world. You need to work on the, make the effort, continue I mean, to make the effort to bring your attention back to the framework of your body at this physical level and feeling these sensations and training your mind not to react to them. In order to, because that is the purification of the mind. That is what Vipassana yeah. is. That and that is the only way we will progress. Yeah. So that is my warning to you. 
the mm-hmm. you're 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 I, I I observed that too because that that reminded me of that guy. Mm-hmm. The conversations that we had on your course, the interchanges that we had. You always had all these questions, you know, about this and that, about that that. Try to understand that the intellect is just a very superficial part of our mind, mm-hmm. and nobody becomes enlightened or goes deeper through the intellect. It 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 it, it eventually does become this because it is only superficial. It if we keep going through and through with the intellect. <clears throat> You know, going to give the example in the discourses of that that uh, uh, professor at, at um, Berkeley who yeah, developed yeah. a machine where you can actually mm-hmm. see the, the you know the the it, through smoke you can actually see the uh, path of the, uh, atomic particles. But he was so such a, a miserable person, mm-hmm. it's because he was only understanding the physics to that superficial degree of the intellect. I would very strongly encourage you to take the next step and go deeper and keep challenging yourself to, and that will flower, it'll create this flowering, that flowering that you had from your first course to your second course to open up your mind enough to start to realize, to, to take out some of that aversion that you might've had from your first course and what, what you heard on the discourse and to say, well, maybe what he said isn't so far out there. It's not so wild, you know. And that the, that is what vipassana is. This purification of the mind is. It's a great flowering or, or opening of the mind to start to 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 dissolve our ego to a degree to realize I'm not as smart as I think I yeah. am. My intellect, yeah. intellect that thinks I am, and that there's a lot of stuff out there that I don't really know, and that. And and to give yourself the room and space to say, you know what, I'm just going to keep making the effort to to try to just feel these sensations and their true nature, the physics at the physical level, at the real level, not the mental, the, not the intellectual level, but what of this arising and passing away, and not trying not to react to it, and see what happens. Do that, and see where that takes you. Yeah. Yeah, you, it will take you to a better place where, than where you are right now, and it will also make you a better physicist. I yeah. will guarantee you that with one hundred percent degree certainty. Yeah, because you will be actually experiencing what you're trying to understand and learn uh, intellectually. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, I feel like my entire life, my intellect has been this like big train engine that just wants to keep going, and. Uh, I mean, a lot of the time, it just leaves me feeling overwhelmed and tired of how my mind will like not stop. And I feel like meditation was the first thing where I discovered this window of there's something that I can do that is beyond the intellect that brings me so much calm, so much clarity, so much wisdom and so much humility. And it was kind of a liberation from my intellect if, if it is only left to my intellect I feel like no I'm no no not not kind of sorry for me yeah it was a liberation and, yeah. and look at how much that how much better how did you feel about that let's yeah. talk about your feelings how did you feel about that I felt like I felt like it was like a great weight off my shoulders yes you know? yes 
And yeah. then I, after my first chorus, I kept wanting to jump in the air and click my heels together. <laughs> it's like this weight had been and and people. My brother, when I saw him, he says, "You yeah. look like you feel you're lighter." He actually yeah. said that something that seems lighter about you, because there that is that is some that is actually there is actually a, some physical thing that yeah. is that that's because you have eradicated that yeah. much of this load that we're carrying around with us. Well, keep doing that. Keep That's what keeps bringing us back. No, this is not fun. This is not a walk in the park. But that's what keeps bringing us back. That's why people do keep doing, they'll do 20-day courses, 30-day courses. That, 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 uh, you, our, our load starts, it's like taking rocks out of our backpack, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you start to see that, you might not see the sun, but you can actually see a light behind the clouds and realize and feel a little bit of warmth and realize there is something else out there, you know, and it feels good. And that time. the other thing I wanted to touch bases with you about too, um, you know, on your form, you had written that um, you were still drinking, you were still, uh, you, were, you were smoking marijuana and using mushrooms. Is that still happening? Yeah, I would say that the drinking is like maybe like one social beer a week is the frequency. Uh, marijuana would be about the same frequency. And mushrooms, I would say lately, the frequency have been like once every like three or four months. But yes. Okay. And why are you doing those things? Um, so I would say that the drinking usually ends up happening when I'm in a social circumstance where other people are drinking and I don't like think too much about it. like, all right, I'm going to share a drink with you. Uh, but I don't really find myself too attracted to the state of mind of being drunk. Like I'm like not really ever uh, drunk. Um, smoking weed though. Yes, I do feel like a lot of the times I'm like, it makes me like relax. And I do have like a craving sometimes for that's like, oh, yeah, I just feel kind of more relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. And the mushrooms, though, I feel like I mentally categorize the experience of psychedelics as being like on a higher tier than any of these other things. I feel like I have, uh, they have illuminated me to what I would say a lot of insights about myself and the reality. And so a couple of times I would say I've used mushrooms as an attempt to dislodge myself from when I feel like I've become kind of stuck in a rut or i've started to feel yeah basically mostly like my mind is going through the same things again and again and so um i feel like they've kind of opened up to me at different times a new window of like creativity or or seeing the world with like a fresh pair of eyes um or you know i feel like they've sometimes brought some wisdom to the surface Mm -hmm. And in fact, in future, I do want to research psychedelics. And so, I mean, my, my, my PhD is in physics, but I'm doing some research in neuroscience as well. Sure. So that's something that I am actually kind of intrigued about. So what if somebody told you that there is a way to achieve all of those experiences and goals or, or whatever all those things that you just said to me but without anything artificial meaning to without any 
having to change some kind of chemistry within myself or uh, um, using anything outside of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I would be very interested. I have already noticed that some of the experiences of the psychedelics overlap highly with my experiences with meditation. But of course, the meditation is like a more challenging, hard path. And it's like the psychedelics are sometimes just like a shortcut. It's like a garden path. Yeah, and how much of that experience do you remember? Um, or after you get high on marijuana, you know, all those great thoughts you had and stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the marijuana, I don't think I depend on it for any kind of illuminating okay, qualities. Right. Just for well, like a little band-aid of uh, just feeling more relaxed. Yeah. Uh, allow me to give you a warning. Mm -hmm. People all often come to me on courses because they do do these things that you know, drugs or alcohol, and they they want to continue doing them. And I say, well, you know, that's your choice. You're you're your own master. But I can tell you one thing with certainty, and that is. Enlightenment and intoxicants, they don't go together. They, they can't go together. It's impossible. This is, a, this is not an ideology or philosophy. This is physics. Anyone who wants to purify their mind at the deepest level, they're going to have to stop at some time all kinds of intoxicants because what happens is the intoxicants will become a huge hindrance yeah. to them and this is any kind of intoxicant that, that uh, <clears throat> we can become intoxicant to other things besides things that are chemically induced uh, but People say often want to argue. Well, just one beer too. You know, like, like the French used to argue with uh, Glenkiji because they always have a glass of wine with their mm. meals. I, I, I have heard. I don't, you know, can't say. And they would argue with Glenkiji. You know, when, what's wrong with just one glass of wine with with uh, dinner? Glenkiji wouldn't have any of it. He would tell them that you may notice that on the days that you had a glass of wine with your meal that when you sit down to meditate that evening your meditation will be weak your mind will wander more and <clears throat> likewise marijuana has the same effect uh, and mushrooms as well for at that moment, the mushrooms might provide us with some kind of insight or clarity, uh, but it does not liberate us from the deeper rooted causes of what are stopping us from having that clarity. Uh, also, they also <clears throat> very quickly will contribute to our already Uh, heavy load of craving. 
that we have deep inside of us that did push us into this life. Because all three of those things, when we do indulge in them, they generate a sensation, a very real, there's a very real uh, uh, biochemical glandular release into the bloodstream that does generate a sensation and it, it's a pleasant sensation. And this is why, you know, have you ever met somebody who took their first drink of alcohol, that they took that first drink with the intention of becoming an alcoholic? No. <laughs> you laughed, but it's a, it's a real question. Have you ever met anyone? Who, no. Who, no, of course not. Because everyone always thinks, I will never become an alcoholic. That's for those weak people, the weak-minded people. That will never happen to me. I will never become a drug addict. I will never become addicted to marijuana. I'll never become addicted to this experience or that experience that will never happen to me because that's only for weak-minded people if that were true there wouldn't be any alcoholics or any drug addicts in the world everyone thinks they can handle it and if they could handle it they could handle their whole life and that is they would they could handle not reacting to things uh, have a bad reaction when things aren't going the way I want them to go, or when things are going uh, in a direction that I don't want them to happen. Things are unwanted, things are happening, and wanted mm -hmm. things are not happening. But it, we can purify, we can reach a stage where when those things happen, we can smile and accept them and say, well, this is you know something that's beyond my control at this mm -hmm. moment. And it, uh, this truth, this is a truth, this is a reality, this is happening at this moment. And uh, I have to, to learn how to deal with it some way and, and uh, um, continue on, you know, forge ahead and continue. So if you really want to progress on this path and you, you want to get the most out of that, if you ever do decide to come to another 10-day course or, or continue on, and you want to get more or the most out of that next experience, the, the time that you do invest into this. Those three things that you're doing are not helping you. Hmm. And and again, I'm, I'm. This is physics that we're talking about here, and you as a physicist should be able to appreciate this. Look at the difficulties you have on your courses as far as not going to those places where your mind goes all the time. That is the reason why we are thinking about all of those things that we think about on courses. It's only happening for two reasons, and that is because it feels good, and I don't feel so bad. I no longer feel that feeling of aversion, and I it, it's feeding my my the deeper part of my mind that is constantly craving. That craving is happening day and night, uh, every moment of the, every of, of the day, uh, every moment where we are not aware of these sensations and we are not 
just feeling the sensations without any preference or prejudice. And remember, he, he said there's three types of uh, sankharas that we are constantly generating. Do you remember that part of the discourse? Line, like lines so. drawn in the water, lines drawn in sand, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. lines drawn in rock with deep hammer and chisel. Hmm. Be very careful. Uh, and this is, I'm giving you a warning uh, through personal experience with those other things that you're doing. Those very quickly will become like lines drawn uh, uh, in rock with hammer and chisel. Hmm. You know, the lines drawn in water, those get evaporated at, at night when we go to sleep automatically. They're, they're not so harmful to us. The lines drawn in sand will turn into lines drawn in, in rock if we keep repeating them over and over, like thinking about some particular incident I had with this guy or this girl, some emotional thing, you know, about our relationship or something like that. He said this to me, you know, oh, next time I see him, I'm blah, 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 you know, we're in this loop. Every moment we're with that thought, again, you should appreciate this as a physicist, there's a very real physiological biochemical glandular release into the bloodstream through our glands that's generating a sensation and the deeper part of our mind is feeling that sensation mm. and is is if it's a sensation of anger as unpleasant of sensation as it is and it's as angry as it makes me <clears throat> it doesn't matter or as pleasant of sensation as it is and as happy as it makes me it doesn't matter the deeper part of the mind feels it and is getting addicted to it. Hmm. That's why the, you know, say the gambler, it's not a drug, it's not alcohol, it's, it's not marijuana, it's, it's not mushrooms or whatever, not LSD. <clears throat> Even though his wife has left him, he's lost his house, his children has left him, everything that meant something to him, everything that was important to him in his life, he's lost. He lost his job too, and he knows that he shouldn't gamble. Hmm. But when the time comes, he has to roll those dice. He can't stop himself. Hmm. Why? Because he's reached such a degree to the sensations associated with what he gets every time he rolls those dice that he no longer has even control enough to stop that, to quit that. He, he, Finally, he has to go to Gamblers Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever. Mm -hmm. But even then, the craving is still there because he hasn't eradicated that craving. But he's just getting that support group and he has enough, he can develop maybe enough self-control to be able to, but he's still suffering because the craving is still there deep down inside. Vipassana, there's no blind alleys. It's like the, the German Autobahn. You may have, I don't know if you drove on them. There's no side streets. There's no blind alleys. And you can go as fast as you want on the Autobahn, you know, and you're with Vipassana, you're driving a Porsche. You know, the 911, it goes up over 200 miles an hour. The more you, 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 you can work on making the effort, it's through making that effort of bringing our attention, bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back, and just accepting, okay, I do have a wandering mind. I do have a monkey mind, but I'm, I'm going to smile and accept that and not get upset about it not get agitated about it, just make, keep making the effort. It's the effort where we gain the experience and start chipping away at this, this slippery mind that keeps wanting to go 
to those other places that make us feel good. And that is what also you do when, when we are, or we do when we are taking, you know, want to have the beer with our friends or uh, do, do smoke the marijuana because you said to make you relax. You, you can get very relaxed through the bosh. You know, you can reach a stage where you will be so so relaxed that, that uh, nothing will bother you, and, and to it, and that's through nothing artificial, nothing nothing uh, without the help of any any kind of crutch that eventually will become a hindrance to uh, the progress of going deeper and developing the insight into the physics of what what is really real and what is this some belief system or some conjecture conjecture uh, uh, some, some kind of something i heard or read in a book or somebody else's experience or whatever that that is my discourse to you for yeah. as far as uh think about it i'm not i'm not yeah. your master i i am not the the marijuana police the mushroom <laughs> police or the uh uh, alcohol police or anything like that. Uh, I'm not here to, but I just for me to, uh, bringing this out into the open and and uh, uh, you know I, I, I grew up with an alcoholic and and, and uh, I could see I, that uh, has given me a very, um, very to be very clear eyed uh, of of just how uh, this is a woman who who. Uh, had, uh, was working on her her uh, pilot's license. This is a woman who was a, a teacher who brought up four children. She played the the uh, organ in church every Sunday. This is a, a very uh, she was a, a Girl Scout leader. This is a very strong woman uh, who who um, uh, you know did did many things with her her her, her life. Uh, uh, who fell to this became a slave to the sensations associated with uh, this chemical of alcohol. And, and it really destroyed her life. Uh, nobody told, nobody uh, uh, warned her against that in her earlier life. And, and uh, she went to Alcoholics Anonymous, was part of, uh, uh, she went, she, she Put herself in a treatment facility for a month it was to stop. I was in the Navy at the time. <clears throat> Didn't drink for 21 years. Was completely uh, sober for 21 years. Something happened. Um, I don't know what, but that craving was still there. She started drinking again. Um, but, but I used to come and visit. And by that time, she she had uh, started doing vipassana, and they we used to sit together too, but that had tapered off. I couldn't stand to see them drinking again, and so I told them, I said, you know, this is your house. Uh, I, I am just your son. I I can't control it. you. You you're masters of your own life, and and how you act in your house is. Up entirely up to you yeah. but it's very unpleasant for me to be around people who who are using intoxicants uh, even if they're my parents and it, it's very difficult for me especially because i've seen what 
what alcohol did to your mom. Uh, and so I can't uh, be here uh, while you drink. Because of that split we had in our earlier life where I went to live in Japan and I didn't have, you know, have any communication with uh, my parents for, for that long period of time. That was so painful to my mother that mm. she didn't want that to happen again. And eventually, so, so they stopped drinking while I was here and they realized they were so much happier when they weren't, they were just drinking well, I shouldn't say just, they were drinking wine, but for one, they started with, again, one glass of wine for dinner, but it was turning into two glasses of wine. Eventually, you know, they, they, I came home one time from, uh, you know, doing these courses and there was blood on the carpet because they had fallen down on a knife or something, or they had come, there was, the TV was still on, things were happening, you know? but they started realizing I would be here for, for a couple of weeks or sometimes maybe a month or something. Um, but I was always traveling to do these courses, but when I came back, they wouldn't drink. They realized how much they could clearly see that when they weren't drinking, how much better their life was, how much happier they were than when after I left and they'd start drinking again. Eventually, they wanted me to stay longer because it was so much easier for them to uh, not drink because I was there and they had a good reason to, to not drink because they, they loved me and they wanted me to be around. And, and, uh, I, I helped them a lot, uh, but eventually they were able to uh, come out of that and, and to, to be strong enough that even when I wasn't there anymore to not drink. And so for the last years of their life, I think maybe the last uh, five to eight years of their life, they didn't drink uh, at all. Yeah. I, I took care of them the last uh, five years of their life while they, they were passing away. Anyway, that that's more more personal, more more information than maybe you want to know. Yeah. Bigger, bigger uh, bite. Uh, but like I said, for me, telling you these things ha has higher quality than not not telling you that that uh, yeah, maybe it, it, uh, it there would be some time in your life when you're in a dark place and you'll remember. Oh wait a minute, what? What did that guy say about this or something like that? But, uh, you never know. Oh, thanks, thanks for sharing. Yeah. It ain't it ain't easy. What what we're doing, what we're trying to do, uh, but as I said, that that experience you got from these two courses, that's something that you will keep with you. That won't go away. That doesn't go away. Even if you never meditate another day of your life, another minute of your life, that's going to help you immensely uh, in ways that you are not aware of yet. <clears throat> uh, for the not only for the rest of this life, but also uh, for some future. Um, but, uh, but you don't have to believe in past or previous lives either, too. But uh, you got to believe in this life. But also, as a physicist, you, you should be able to appreciate that if there isn't something else that happens after death, then the laws of physics, as we know them today, there's something wrong with them. There's something in trouble. There's some kind yeah. of energy going on here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I don't believe that the laws of physics are a complete description of the world anyway. The laws of physics as we know them today. As we know them, yes. Yeah, yeah there you go. Physics, <laughs> the laws of nature, we'll call them what, they are perfect. They, they are whatever, they're, they're, there's no, uh, they're, they're not random. <laughs> they're not, it's, not, it's not chaos. Things are, things are, there is a law of cause and effect that's actually happening. You, you've got to know a little bit about that through physics, right? Mm -hmm. that, yeah. They're they're real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you you can take don't throw away. That's what, coming back to the laws of karma, cause and effect. There's some reason why you came to a court. There's some right reason why you were born at a time when these teachings were alive. That didn't happen by accident. There's some reason why what, that attracted you. And there's some reason why you even came back for a second course. That doesn't, I think I was looking at statistics one time, something like only two, two and a half percent of the people who take a course come back for a second course. Hmm. And the percentage hmm. of people who continue on and protect practice and vipassana for the rest of their life is even less than that. Because hmm. It's hard, but that that again that happens for a reason as well too. But yeah. I wish you all the best. <laughs> I hope to, I hope to see you again on yeah. a, a course somewhere. This has happened to me many times. You know, I go to India a lot. I used to before the pandemic, and also when I lived in Japan, I've been to India. Maybe, I can't remember how many more than fifteen times. I go there. To, I used to go there to sit. Well, what part of India are you from? You're from I'm Nepal. From, I'm, oh me? I'm from Kolkata. Or Calcutta. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. I'm from India, yeah. I love India. That's a, it's, <laughs> and meditation, meditation in India is. I, I once I there when we started having long courses outside of India, I sat the first forty-five five day courses. It was in Massachusetts, a very nice center. It was the first time I sat a long course outside of India. I sat in Massachusetts uh, on the talking day. I went and talked to the teacher and I said, I will never sit another long course outside of India because it's so different. Mm. Sitting in India, the, the, you know, there's something different about sitting in <laughs> India. It, it is it is magic. Uh, it is, uh, I am, um, anyway, it, it turned out not to be true anyway, as far as uh, I have sat many long courses outside of India because of the convenience and stuff, but I, I, I'm trying to get back there to do another another long course. I would encourage you to to uh, go to some go go to Bodh Gaya. Um, mm. That's not so far far away from from uh, Kolkata. Yeah. Go or go to Gdamagiri. That's that's a very comfortable center. Go to, go to some center or, or to to Jaipur. Mm. Sit a ten day course in India sometime, and uh, it'll be a completely different experience than what you're you had in Texas. I guarantee you. Okay, okay. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Yes, it, it is lovely. The first time I went to India, I, I went there to sit a 30-day course. The very first time, the moment I stepped off the airplane and uh, started walking through the airport, I could feel there is something going on here. There is something different. And I thought, I just first I thought, well, that's just my imagination, you know. I'm here to, I, I'm eager. I'm here to sit a 30 day course. It was my first 30 day course, you know, and, and I'm excited and stuff. But no, every time after that as well, 
it was so clear to me the very moment I landed India, it doesn't matter where I am in India, it is the land of Buddha. And supposedly, you know, four Buddhas have arisen in India. And supposedly, the prediction is the fifth one that, that, that will come sometime in the distant future is supposed to, and they have all risen in about the same general area as well, northern India, you know, Nepal, that, that area around there. That didn't happen by accident. There's some reason for that. And I've also heard that there's only certain parallels where we, we in the in the world where we can experience uh, nirvana as well. <clears throat> there, there's something going on at a deeper level there that uh, we are not uh, aware of. And, and uh, yeah, it's there's something special about India and and uh, as as coming that that being. Mother India being your mother country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel like there is actually something a little bit uncanny that, you know, when I was growing up in India, I was an atheist from a very young age. I was, you know, I was growing up in a communist state where it was actually quite common for people to be atheists or non-religious. And I was like, oh, I'm not really interested in any of the Hindu religiosity or any of that. And I was like a pretty staunch atheist. I was an atheist when I came to the U.S. as well. And actually during my graduate school is when I kind of for a number of reasons started to get into like spirituality, but I was still like, I don't want to get into religion. And I read in a book the first time the instructions for Anapana meditation. And that's when I kind of started getting more and more into it. And I, I realized that although I was nominally Hindu in India, I resonated more with the Buddhist teachings and everything. And then eventually when I got deep enough into it, I went back and read a little bit about the history of Buddhism. And I saw that, wait, is this a complete coincidence that the Buddha was born and lived in a part of the world that's not very far from where I, I am? It, it, it might just be a complete coincidence that I'm resonating with his teachings. But another theory that I have is that it leaves a certain kind of a reflection or echo that's embedded in the cultural psyche. Even if I did not explicitly grow up in the Buddhist teachings, there is something like that, that the, 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 the way the shape and form of life and interactions and people's perspectives and values reflect and resonate. And, and, and I observed all of that while I was growing up. So maybe it's not that surprising that I come to a teaching like that. I'm like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense <laughs> to do this. I'm, I'm feeling pleasant sensations throughout my whole body as you're telling me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm spending a, a little extra time with you is because yeah. I have developed the sensitivity. Like you talked about that sensitivity about other people too. Mm -hmm. There's some people who come and want to leave the course. In the past, when I first started becoming an assistant teacher, I would hold, try to hold on to them, you know, and argue with them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But sometimes, I'm very clearly, I've come to, to learn there's certain people, it's not their time. Or they don't have the parmies. To, 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 but there's certain other people who I realize I, t I do hold on to. I realize they need, they, this person has something in them where they can get through this. There's, there's, and I do talk to them, they do end up staying, and they end up thanking me for that. But also, <clears throat> there's other other people who I recognize that that, that, um, that this is not the first time that they've done Vipassana, even though this is their first course. <clears throat> it's nothing to get puffed up about. Nothing that that. Uh, 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 but, but 
it should be used as a warning that as a, a warning that it, it is a gift a gift in a way that it, it maybe it, it is my own karma but it should not be thrown away or ignored and it's only good it only has value is if i if it, 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 if i use it to help other people and, and if we keep developing on that path, that's what I started to tell you. I forgot, I got a little lost in the family story there. But on, when I'm on these long courses and I'm starting to suffer, to, to complain or doing, you know, the, the mind doing its thing that's always doing, because I do sit on that high seat as an assistant teacher and I remember things that I say, have said to people, it's always good for me. It's like, okay, buddy nobody likes a hypocrite you know and so you remember what you said to that guy you remember what you said to her you remember what you said to that student was i kind of have to laugh it's like okay get busy get back to you know what you're supposed to be doing you know if you're practicing vipassana but that is my inspiration on on courses as well as i i want to become a better assistant teacher yeah. uh, and the only way to do that is by walking on the path myself and to work on this purification, purification process on myself to, to be able to help people more uh, in on, on these courses and in the, in the outside world. It made a huge difference to, to my family. All, all of my family have taken at least one course. Uh, their kids, uh, and, and it's, it has this rippling effect. The changes we make to ourselves just like that stone thrown on the pond, thrown in the pond, you know, it affects first those closest to us, that circle of our, our immediate family and our relatives, and that starts to affect uh, uh, the people we work with. And, and uh, I want to change the world. Where's the best place for us to start? <laughs> and who's the only person, the only person I can really change? It's ourselves. So. <clears throat> I encourage, I, I'll, I'll give you a guarantee too that um, after, if you sit a 45 day course in India, uh, I will come there, I'll either sit the course with you or come there when it's finished and we'll do a tour to the four holy sites. All right, okay. okay. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, wow. Okay, a 45-day course. I, 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 haven't, I haven't done it yet. I, mean, I haven't visited them yet. And it's a big yeah. goal in my life. Uh, the Buddha said himself that uh, before one dies, he should go to the whole full, the holy sites. He or she should go, go visit the, you know, the place where the Buddha was born, the place where the Buddha became enlightened, the place where the Buddha started to turn the wheel of Dhamma, and the place where... Uh, uh, Buddha experienced party nirvana, his last uh, breath, his last life. And uh, uh, finished. Uh, I, I, I want to go there and meditate. Uh, I've been a Bodh guy, uh, only there. And very clear, there's a lot of stuff going on there. That's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, whew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never been, but I would like to go. Damagiri is pretty impressive too. That Goikaji used to, to, that's where he used to do self courses, he and his wife, Mataji. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
meditating with them was always a very powerful experience. Yeah. All right, let, let's, uh, I've taken enough of your time now. I'm the no, one who's doing okay. all the talking. <laughs> so, all um, right, thanks, so, thanks I, a lot. I, I hope our paths cross again on the Dhamma Yeah, channel. I hope so too. I hope so and, too. And if you do have some, another some burning question that keeps, keeps, keeps uh, uh, rolling around in your head, go sit a course first, see if you can answer it yourself, because those are the best an answers. But uh, if not, uh, I'm always happy to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Tim. I like your shirt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining Tim and I today in the Room of Lives. In the next episodes, I'll be interviewing Drew Schaefer, a Zen Buddhist practitioner who has spent years in Zen monasteries and currently lives at the Austin Zen Center. Mm -hmm.